Welcome to the Content That Grows podcast, where we chat with folks from all kinds of companies to better understand the content they've invested in, how they did it, and how it impacted the growth of their company. I'm Nate Turner, co-founder and CEO of 10speed.io. Today, I'm joined by Melanie Diesel. Melanie is a keynote speaker, award-winning branded content creator, and lifelong storyteller on a mission to share the power of content with others. She's the author of the best-selling marketing and business communications book, The Content Fuel Framework, How to Generate Unlimited Story Ideas. Melanie spends her days giving keynotes and leading workshops that teach marketers, creators, and companies of all sizes how to create better content. And with that, let's jump right in. Hey, Melanie, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd love to get started by having you just uh, explain a little bit about how you got into um, a career in and around content and, and just like what your, your roles have been and, and even just how your interests have evolved uh, throughout your career. Yeah, so I, I guess I thought I had an unconventional path, but I'm learning more and more that there are a lot of folks working in content marketing who came from the journalism world. Uh, so that was me. I studied investigative reporting and arts and cultural criticism and definitely thought I was going to be working in, you know, a newsroom somewhere, uh, you know, uncovering injustice and like discovering embezzlement, you know, like the, the hard hitting, <laughs> like all the president's men, um, sure. Bernstein type stuff is, is where I thought I'd be. Um, but I learned really quickly that it was a real need for uh, sort of a journalist sensibility in the marketing space and, and someone who could bring in that type of learning, that type of content creation approach and mindset to a lot of the content that was being used in a marketing and sales context. So I started out at uh, the Huffington Post and their branded content team, just creating sponsored content for brands that lived on the HuffPost platform. Um, I went over to the New York Times where I was the New York Times' first ever editor of branded content, so helped build out a very similar team there that basically would help brands create uh, content that lived on the New York Times, clearly disclosed, of course, um, you know, just to, to kind of address our audience in, in a way that was slightly more entertaining and, and native than, uh, you know, maybe just squares and rectangles, as I as I fondly call the, the display ads. Um, you know, it, it was yeah. sort of a, a, an interesting journey for me to go from, like, really fun, lighthearted kind of content at HuffPost to the more journalistic kind of sensibility at uh, the New York Times. And, yeah. you know, a few more stops after that, what I realized is I really love the educational side of this. I love being able to help people feel more confident as storytellers, feel more creative, uh, feel like they have stories to tell and they know how to tell them uh, and, and getting to play that role of just, you know, helping them level up. So I've been focused mostly on that uh, for the last six years or so. Okay, very cool. Um, and, you know, we do a lot of like customer, um, or sorry, like content strategy with clients and um, just really very deep into that world and across SaaS and direct consumer in a number of ways. Um, we always love chatting with people and just kind of understanding what um, what frameworks they use or how they approach strategy and, and planning. It's always like, that's what's so fascinating to me about content marketing in general is that there's so many so many ways you can do it, so many ways you can approach it um, and, and still kind of come away with uh, meeting your goals. So I uh, would love to just hear any sort of frameworks or, or ways that you approach that uh, would, be, would be really cool. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, frameworks. I don't know if those of you who are watching, I, that's in the title of my book, the Content Field Framework. So like, yeah. I'm a a big fan of putting structure around things, uh, especially things in the creative space where we feel like being unstructured is what you need to do. In most cases, having structure and frameworks actually helps you be way more productive. Um, so when it comes to coming up with content ideas, that's a problem that I'm helping a lot of businesses solve. Um, and so for that, we use the, the method outlined in my book, which is basically uh, understanding that every content idea is made up of two parts, right? We like to think of it as an idea, a singular thing, but it has two elements. And that's the focus, like what are we talking about? What's the message? What's the focus of this content? And then there's the format. How are we bringing that story to life? What does it look like, feel like, sound like, whatever else? How do we deliver it. Um, and so once you break it down into those two parts, it becomes much easier to think about what is the message I want to share? What are some of the ways I might share that message? And then what's the best way to bring it to life? It just takes what is otherwise like a come up with ideas, which has no obvious steps or process or anything attached to it, just like have ideas, you know, um, and kind of turns it into more of a process. So we find that that kind of approach really helps make it uh, more intentional, more productive than sort of like hoping something comes to you. Um, but the other thing I like to do is really just talk about the high level business goals. And that might seem kind of backward for, for a marketer. Um, I, I'm all about the content we're creating, of course, but at the end of the day, content for content's sake isn't doing anyone any good. Content that we feel real good about that solves zero problems, like also not good. Um, and for the good of content marketers everywhere, we should be aiming to create content that creates results. And so oftentimes the best like process to start with is really backing up and saying, what are we really trying to accomplish as a company, as a department, uh, at a product level, if you're doing product marketing and just understanding like, what is our goal? And then asking, how can I create content that supports that goal? For me, that kind of working backward tends to just, you end up creating content and creating a strategy that you're going to be proud of, that your team is going to be more supportive of, um, and quite frankly, is just like more rewarding to work on. Um, I don't know about the rest of you. I'm pretty sure we're on the same page here. Like, I don't like to make content that gets no engagement and nobody likes, like, you know, so, uh, you know, if we can, if we can kind of back up a bit and focus on those goals, I just feel like it's, it's kind of a win for everybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you said uh, making content for content's sake, which I love because I it's probably five or six times a week that I'm saying uh, we don't generate traffic for traffic's sake uh, is, is yep. something that I say a lot. So um, yeah, totally, totally agree. And I think especially, yeah, when you think broader into content marketing and um, all of the different formats that could hold, um, yeah. that it, it is important to not be just creating it for the sake of that. And I also love um, the idea of decoupling the idea into the, the topic and the format. And um, I think I've seen a lot over the years where there's um, the format comes first, actually, instead of even an idea. And it's like, yeah. you know, we need to write an ebook. What's an idea for this? <laughs> Versus like, here's a topic. And like, to your point, What's the best way to deliver this? Is it yeah. a video or a video series? Is it a blog post or 
you know, whatever it may be. I think I like, uh, that's really I smart. I like to draw the connection to like Amazon packaging or, you know, any big conglomerate packaging. You know, oftentimes you get this massive box in the mail <laughs> and there's like one tiny thing inside it. Yeah. And I feel like that's the best analogy. Like someone picked that box before they knew what was going to go inside of it. Mm-hmm. And you end up with a ton of filler that nobody needs. And everyone's kind of like, this was a waste in so many ways. So like, we don't want to pick the box before we know what we're putting inside of it or we're going to be in a, in a similar situation yep yep totally yeah that's great um so so you mentioned um so story fuel framework so you, you've uh, done a lot with like storytelling um for companies that aren't necessarily approaching their marketing and content with storytelling in mind like what are some of the what are some of the like practical things that you typically recommend that they do to, to be able to incorporate that so there's a couple different things you can do. I mean, one of the easiest sort of high level, most broadly applicable things is to bring more people into your content. Uh, what I find is that as people, we tell stories. Like you asked me my background and I told you a story without even trying, right? It's just the natural way we communicate. And so if you are bringing more people into your content, for example, talking to employees, talking to customers, um, you know, talking to community members or experts, you're gonna have that storytelling kind of built in because it's just the way we communicate. So that's sort of an all purpose tip is just bring more people into your story. Uh, As an added bonus, people tend to lend a lot of credibility to your content. So whether that's, you know, your customers who are acting as witnesses to all the things that you claim or the experts who are kind of corroborating all the claims that you make, um, it has that sort of hybrid effect of bringing in the storytelling and boosting your credibility. But the other thing you can do that that's kind of like an easy starting point if you're feeling like I want to be doing these big kind of stories, but I'm not really sure where to start or you're worried about getting buy in if you, you know, don't maybe don't have that as part of your strategy already. Uh, whatever your version of testimonials or customer stories is, that's often the best place to start. So if you're doing like case studies, testimonials, success stories, whatever that looks like for you, my guess is that it's usually something along the lines of like, quote, like a a compliment in quotation marks, uh, a name, maybe truncated, like, you know, A. Smith, a title, and if you're lucky, like also a headshot or a company logo. And that's pretty much the extent of it in so many cases. And, you know, if you can go after those and say to, for example, your sales team, like, I want to make these more robust so that they are better supporting your sales process. I want to bring in more value propositions. I want to talk more about the change that our product creates. Um, You can usually get buy-in on that pretty easily. And then what you want to do is just talk to those people in more depth. Ask them more questions. Why did you look for this solution? What had you tried before that didn't work? You know, just be genuinely curious and talk to them. And a story is going to form. You're going to hear their mental and emotional journey of this was the problem I had. This is what I tried unsuccessfully to do to fix that. Then I found this amazing solution. Here's all the change and results we created. And here's why I recommend you do the same thing. Like that story arc is built in to asking people for more detailed testimonials. So (laughs) that's that's a great starting point if you're just getting started. Um, Because number one, you probably already have some leads for where to go, right? People who told you a little bit and now you want them to tell you more. Uh, And number two, everyone in the organization understands that those are important. Like they're one of the first things you want to put on your website or in your sales material and your pitch deck. So if you can get more of that, pretty much everyone's going to agree that that's a worthwhile endeavor. So I would say, you know, 
general general statement look look for your customer success uh, quotes and make them into customer success stories uh, and that's a, a really good place to start sprinkling storytelling into the stuff you create and, and get broader buy-in yeah absolutely yeah I love that and it yeah it's um, I've definitely read some case studies in the past where you're like it's almost like it's so compelling you don't want to stop reading because it's yeah. it because it's a story like you kind of get brought into like the pain that they had and you're like well now I want to see this through and like you know whatever it had but not that I'm like reading case studies uh for entertainment <laughs> necessarily <laughs> but, you know, but you can definitely tell when they're when they're well done it also opens up relatability which is is so key with storytelling right you have to connect to the stories like you said you you feel compelled you feel connected to it and it's really hard for me to connect with a smith a vp at widget co like i don't know anything about a smith i don't know anything about their problems their customers their business like nothing if i'm reading a story about them about their challenges that gives me the opportunity to say oh wow i'm also working with a minimal budget oh wow we also have a subscription model you know we're a SaaS product too or you know oh we also struggle with that particular kpi or whatever the case may be you know, or even just on a, on a human level, like, oh, wow, I also live in North Carolina. I also have a dog, like whatever it is. It's more of a chance for your, your prospects to see themselves in a, as a successful client. Like I could have those results too. I should be a client too. Um, so yeah, the more detail you can bring in, the more you can talk about these people who are giving you a testimonial, like the more chances someone reading is going to see themselves as a potential successful customer too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, very cool. Uh, going back to, you mentioned, you know, your time, I think in New York times where you were starting to do more of the like, um, uh, branded content, like a new format for or native advertising and stuff like that. Um, and I, I would love for you to just maybe expand on that a little bit. Um, I think I'm, I'm somewhat familiar. I've done a lot of like that. And so I think just for, for folks to really understand like what, what goes into like native advertising and in why that's like interesting from a content perspective? Yeah. So at the, at the most like basic level, like going down to linguistics, sorry guys, I'm a word person. <laughs> um, when we use native, what we typically mean is like something thrives in a particular environment. Like, you know, plants are native to a certain climate or people native to a certain place. So when we talk about native advertising, literally what we're saying is advertising content that organically fits and thrives in a particular environment. So when you're on Twitter, what's native is tweets. And that's why native advertising there is sponsored tweets that appear in the, in the feed. That's what's expected. That's where it performs best. When you talk about native advertising on something like the New York Times, well, what do people expect when they go to the New York Times or, or any publication? Like particularly the New York Times, we expect in-depth content. We expect reliable sources. We expect it to be, you know, um, sort of objective in some way or like actually presenting multiple, per, you know, multiple takes, whatever the case may be, um, multimedia. So they're expecting content. So native advertising on the New York Times or HuffPost or wherever else is content. So that's where we kind of have that in almost interchangeable branded content native advertising is in that context where content is what people want, then content is the most native kind of advertising. So just to give a, a tangible example of what that was like, um, when I was at the New York Times, we would get um, requests for proposal from different brands and agencies saying like, we would like to give you some advertising money to reach your audience, right? Um, broad strokes, my job was to try to convince them 
yes, you should buy some squares and rectangles. We have squares and rectangles plenty. You, you can have some. But I recommend that you send those people who click your squares and rectangles to an article or an infographic or a video or something that's going to engage them on a deeper level because that's going to create a stronger connection to our audience. So that was kind of my job. It was a real creative job, which was awesome for me to say, like, what is the overlap between what this brand wants to say or the conversation they want to have and what our audience actually cares about, what they actually are interested in learning about, trying to find like the tiny, you know, like Venn diagram overlap of those things and create that which is in the middle. So um, a real tangible example, you know, um, Johnson and Johnson came to us and they wanted, you know, they have a lot of messaging about mothers and they Father's Day was coming up. They wanted to have some messaging about, you know, the importance of fathers. Um, and so we did a research backed piece. We looked at a bunch of research about the important roles that dads play in their children's lives. Um, you know, all the benefits of having an involved dad, uh, you know, the types of skills dads typically teach, all that all based on research. So the exact kind of like level of reporting and reliability you'd expect brought to you by Johnson & Johnson. An expert from within Johnson & Johnson was quoted because they had relevant expertise. Um, so that was really what we were trying to do is, is just try to create content that helped share the brand message but also provided value to our audience. So it was a fun, a fun sort of matchmaking type job. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I, I know that I've... Um... I've come across examples that were really well done. I think on TechCrunch maybe and uh, yeah. Search Engine Journal, uh, where by the end you're like, oh, dang, they're actually like, they're, this is promoted and, and there's something here, yeah. but it was actually just really good content. Um, yeah. So I definitely have understood that, but I haven't like been someone who's put dollars into that mm. um, as a channel. So I'm curious, like, how much do you recommend that to people as part of their strategy overall? Is like actually approaching that as part of their mix. So we could have this conversation for like two hours. I would love <laughs> to dive into it, but at the highest possible level, sure. um, this is a very expensive tactic, right? So when you're, um, you think about any paid campaign you might do, that's usually driving people directly to your site or to a product page or something. We're talking about buying media that drives to another thing you have to pay for and build that then drives to your website, right? So we're adding a middleman. That's not always really effective if you're looking for direct response. If you're trying to generate sales, downloads, conversions of some kind, it's probably not gonna be the best, most effective price-wise, right? Um, it may work very well, but just not as effective price-wise. So it's a really good solution when you are trying to uh, build awareness, right? Reach an audience who wouldn't have thought of you before, but now they're like, oh, these guys actually know what they're talking about. Or, oh, I didn't realize there was a solution to that problem, right? You're trying to have a conversation. Um, and also for deeper engagement. If you already have an audience, but you kind of want them to know you're thinking deeper or you're adding this new topic that you don't normally talk about, you've got something new coming, you're pivoting a bit, it's a, a real great time for you to do that. Uh, thought leadership fits really well into this category. Uh, if you have someone on your team, your CEO, yourself, um, who has a perspective to share that's going to be interesting, it's a perfectly valid thing to do to write up that awesome perspective you have and then make sure you're putting it somewhere people are actually going to read it, right? So that's a great example of when putting a piece of content somewhere where you can buy some audience for it more naturally is a great solution. So 
ballpark, you know, if you're working with one of the big national or international publishers, you're looking at a six-figure engagement minimum, right? These are expensive things to, to build at that level of visibility. Um, but we're talking about millions of impressions of very expensive audiences. And that's rarely the right call if you are a small business, a local business, or a highly niche uh, startup. So my advice is to not worry about the size of the publication and worry about the level of targeting. Like how accurate is this for your audience? Because it might be so much better for you to write a guest post or a guest issue of a newsletter that has a thousand subscribers if those are the thousand subscribers you need to reach. It might be better for you to, to go to TechCrunch or some obscure forum or, you know, there's lots of places where you can create content native to that environment uh, and pay to make sure that it's going to be seen by those folks. and. Um, you know, you're probably not looking for the gigantic general purpose audience. That is why it's so expensive and probably why it's not the right call. So look for those smaller publications and audiences and then ask yourself, how can I add some value in this environment? That's going to probably be your best play. Cool. That's great advice. I um, I think one of them that I, that I read on, on Search Engine Journal was about, it was like very how-to on like SEO forecasting. Uh, yeah. And then I don't remember the tool, but it was basically a tool that helped with that. So it was very well done in that, yes, they didn't go to New York Times, but they found this very much the right audience that they're yeah. in front of. Um, so I think that's great advice. I think it's it's helpful. And I like when people do say, like, this isn't for everyone or don't do it. Because I think um, you know, for anyone listening, like, a lot of times I can be like, oh, should I be doing that? Like, are we missing out? Should I be doing more uh, native advertising? So. Appreciate that. And one of the things I was going to mention is you were talking about the content itself for, for doing something like that, maybe thought leadership. Um, and I think that's a good point because um, conversations that I've had with companies about like, what should we be doing with thought leadership? Where should it live? And typically the response is like, you know, unless I know more about their data for their site, like, if you don't have much traffic to your site, then like that's probably not the place for it. Like, ha if it's the CEO or whatever, like go go drop a bunch of threads on Twitter or go guest post um, for a publication that does have an audience or yeah. whatever, be a Forbes contributor or something. That's like you. There's no point in like writing this groundbreaking thought leadership that's going to get four views a month. Uh, <laughs> on your site, unless you're such a small yeah. industry that those four are game changing. So I yeah. like that idea of, of potentially, if you are gonna do that, thinking through the, the thought leadership lens, that it is something that's gonna get your your voice and your perspective out there uh, at a high, high level. Definitely, and it's also not something you have to necessarily choose between. There's a way to do both, right? Like you are probably wanting to build an audience on your own land, right? On your website or whatever, wherever that may be. Um, but, you know, if you're having a party there, you probably still need to send some invites somewhere else to make sure that people are coming. So uh, it's a nice way to kind of, you know, pair things together. If something does really well on your platform, you can spruce that up and put it elsewhere, originally published on, you know. Um, if something is getting great traction, you can see about having it occur once a month or every other week you're hosting it somewhere else. And then, you know, for regular updates, come back to our platform. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can kind of build those two strategies of building your audience and bringing in new audience together. Yep. Yep. Great. I love that. Um, so switching back uh, to content strategy and broader just content marketing, um, I'm curious, 
if you have any ideas on like common pitfalls that you see with companies as they're going about um, uh, really kind of anything, whether it's like pitfalls with uh, building their strategy or trying to scale their program, anything along those lines would be really helpful. Yeah, you know, there's there's some really common things that come up time and again, and I think a big part of it is that oftentimes people who are being tasked with creating a content strategy or, or executing on that strategy, like content is probably not their background. We often see content being like heaped onto someone's plate, like, you know how to write, you could do the blog, right? Or like, here you go, have Instagram. Um, yeah. So yes, yeah. It's, it's oftentimes sort of an add-on responsibility. Um, we see two things really often. So one is the sort of um, like chaotic energy sporadically posting in a bazillion different places and never really being able to give any one thing enough attention for it to get traction. Um, so that's that's sort of the, the first one, which is like uh, not being focused enough. So my recommendation is always to start out in one, maybe two places. So that could be your newsletter and LinkedIn, or it could be Twitter and your blog or whatever the case may be. Choose one or two that you can really focus your attention on, build those out. And as you get more comfortable consistently delivering value in those places, add new places, right? Think of it like you're building a franchise. Like you don't want to go out and create 50 of a brand new restaurant like you want to start with one really good one work out all the kinks and then you expand as you get better right um so think of it like that start out smaller um the other thing we see is almost like the opposite end of the spectrum which is people are so intimidated by that need to the, the perceived need to be everywhere i've got to post five times a day on twitter and and once a day on linkedin and i gotta be doing TikToks every other day and it's like paralyzing because there's just so much that you're expected to do. Um, and you know, oftentimes you don't have the tools, the skills, the experience to do all of those disparate things. And that can create the opposite problem, which is like, I'm just not gonna do any of it because I'm, I'm so unsure what to do. So same advice for that one, which is pick one or two places, focus there, get good and grow from there. Um, I, I've said this many times, I would rather see you be awesome in two places than mediocre in 10. Um, that's going to be better for your audience, better for you and your business. Um, I mean, the only other thing I think we sometimes see is, is coming back to that conversation earlier about reverse engineering is, you know, you may be doing a great job creating, you know, hilarious memes on Twitter or, you know, writing a blog post every single day. But if it's not tied back to those business goals in a really clear way, you could be creating audience for the sake of audience, right? If none of them are converting or you've got a great following, but none of them know what you actually do. Um, you know, I, one of the examples I love for this is, are you familiar with Stakeums on Twitter? Yeah. Okay. So we all, like many of us follow Stakeums. Many of us are there because they, they have this sort of funny breaking the fourth wall, talking about how weird the internet is, right? And how weird it is bring, being a brand Twitter account. Um, I have never even considered buying Stakeums. I wouldn't even know where to look for it. Like, I'm not, I'm not a customer. I might be a follower, but like, I, I listen, I'm not questioning their strategy. They may have figured it out. But in many cases, we kind of take that same approach of like, oh, I'm going to make some great memes or I'm going to write a great blog. Um, but if you aren't taking it that step further to say, okay, and how does that, to your point, not traffic for traffic's sake, like, where does it go? What does it generate for us? Um, sometimes that link is missing and that can be really frustrating. Yep. Yeah. That's great. I can definitely uh, resonate with all of those. I think we definitely see a lot where there's a lot happening. There's a lot of activity 
um, but is it all kind of unified into a strategy? Not necessarily. Um, and similarly, like it's common that there isn't that connection to the the broader business goals and really understanding, you know, for people to even be able to answer like why why do we need to have more writers to create eight posts a month instead of four? You know, whatever. Yeah. Like that that's uh it's something that we we like to try to be able to help people with and and understand that that connection of like, well, here's why, because here's the opportunity, it lines to your business goals and, and whatnot. And, and I think that that's huge, especially for scaling a program. Um, I think a lot of people approach content more broadly, not just blog content as like um, table stakes, you know, like we, we have to, we have to be doing these things. Um, but for it, for it to go from there to like, this is a powerhouse program that drives a ton of awareness a ton of uh, revenue for the company uh definitely requires the right measurement the right processes the right frameworks like you talked about um to know and be able to tie that to the business goal so yeah i think that's that's really great um thank you for listening if you've uh enjoyed the podcast we uh you can check out the show notes 10 speed.io slash podcast and um if you um all right, I botched that. <laughs> all right, we'll we'll edit that part. Um, let me do that again. Um, all right, so before we wrap up, uh, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this, please visit 10speed.io slash podcast for the show notes uh, to learn a little bit more about Melanie. Uh, and with that, I would love to just kind of wrap up and have you um, share any final feedback or advice you would have for folks. Well, the final piece I'll give you is that um, this is supposed to be fun. And I don't mean that you should never have a hard day at work. I don't mean that, you know, it's never going to be stressful or busy. Um, but creating content is, is a creative expression. And we all have creativity. We all have stories to tell. Um, so if you feel like that fire is missing, if you're feeling like it's content for the sake of content, you're feeling like, I don't even like this content. I don't know why our audience would. Uh, chances are there is a missing link somewhere. So take the time to step back find that missing link so that all this love and effort you're putting into the stuff you create is generating the results that matter to you. Really? Yeah, that I totally agree. I love that. Um, awesome. Well, thanks Melanie so much for joining. Appreciate you uh, making the time and, and coming on. Thanks for having me.